Can you imagine the final moments before death? Many of us have been around somebody's final moments, but all of us have seen a movie where somebody is about to breathe their final breath. Now, I want you to imagine this with me. Imagine that you've been found guilty of a terrible crime. You've maintained your innocence all the way through, but in your heart, in your soul, you know you're guilty. And now you're standing at death's door. The noose is swaying in the breeze gently behind you, and you're about to mount the makeshift platform, and the hangman is about to kick the lift out from underneath you so that you fall to your death. What's going through your mind in this moment? What's racing through your heart? What do you say in moments like this? Do, do, do you say something profound, maybe something funny, or do you defend yourself until your final breath? We're starting a brand new series called Famous Last Words. And you've heard that expression before, right? Famous Last Words. It, it reminds me of a story I heard once about the famed outlaw named Pepe Rodriguez. And Pepe Rodriguez was this, this bank robber who was very notorious back in the 1800s. He, he lived in the early days of the wild, wild west. And, and he lived just across the border in Mexico. But he and his outlaws, they would make these nighttime raids into Texas. And before the Texas Rangers could you know, catch up to him, they would, they would make the heist of the bank and they would slip back across the border into the safety of their own hometown. Now, Pepe Rodriguez was a very dangerous man, and this went on for months and months, and it, it thoroughly embarrassed the Texas Rangers, so much so that they made a decision one day that they, too, would do something illegal. They decided to cross the Mexican border and to go after him. And after months of searching, they finally cornered Pepe Rodriguez in this old Mexican saloon where he frequented. The Texas Rangers surrounded the place, and once they had it surrounded, they kicked in the front door, only to find Pepe Rodriguez in the corner of the building in this drunken stupor. He was a mess, and unfortunately for the Rangers, Pepe could only speak Spanish, couldn't speak a lick of English. And so they turned to the bartender, and they asked him to translate for them, and, and they say to the bartender, tell Pepe that he needs to tell us where all the gold is, where all the money is right now, and we mean business. And so the bartender turns and tells this to Pepe, but Pepe just plays dumb like he doesn't know anything about what's going on. And just to show Pepe that they mean business, they shot one of his toes off right there on the spot. And this time they, they tell the, 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 the bartender, they say, you tell Pepe that if he doesn't tell us where the gold is, we're going to shoot him dead right here, right now. And so the bartender tells him, of course, and, and Pepe this time gets a little bit tough and says, I'm never going to tell you. I'm, I don't owe you anything. And, and, and he's just playing like tough guy. And so what they do is they, they turn, they shoot his other toe. It's crazy right there on the spot. And so now fear just really comes into Pepe and they realize that, you know, he realizes that they're really, really serious at this point. And so they tell the bartender, you tell him one last time, this is his final chance. You tell us where the gold is right now, or you will be shot dead. And this time, Pepe knew that they were serious, and, 
and, he, and so he starts to tell him, you know, the gold is located in the, in the city well. I hid it in the well, and if you were to count 17 blocks down, you'll find a loose block, and then, then you pull that block free, and you're gonna find all the gold and all the money stuffed in right there. He wanted to live, and he says, just don't kill me, just don't shoot me. And so the rangers are wondering what he said because he had talked so long. So they say to the bartender, please translate, please translate for us. And the bartender looks the ranger square in the eye and he, and very, very serious, he says, Pepe Rodriguez is one tough old dog. And he says, you guys are a bunch of stinking pigs and he's ready to die. You know, there are some people who always have to have the last word in a conversation, right? But when someone is on his or her deathbed, it's not hard to have the last word. You know, I've always been fascinated by people's last words before they slip into eternity. I remember uh, watching this documentary one time, and I don't even remember who it was about, but it was about this old 1930s gangster, very famous guy, and, and he had killed a lot of people, and he was uh, tried, and he was sentenced to execution by the firing squad, and. And just moments before they were to shoot him, the executioner uh, asked him this question, do you have any final words? Do you have any final last requests? And, and he said, yeah, I'd like to request a bulletproof vest. Pretty clever, huh? I'm reminded of the words of Winston Churchill uh, just before he passed. Do you remember who Winston Churchill was? He was the ever famous prime minister of Great Britain during World War II. He led the fight against the Nazis in Germany and he was this larger than life man. He was this warrior. He always was up for a fight, but just before his death in 1965, he, he uttered these words. He says, I'm bored with it all, so simply bored. And then he slips into the coma and he dies nine days later. I guess some people just live for adventure. Another man you may have heard of was P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum was one of the partners in Barnum and Bailey Brothers Circus, and um, he was this adventurer. He was this entertainer. He was this entrepreneur, and, and literally just moments before he breathed his final breath, he turns to his business partner in 1891, and he says, he says, how were the receipts today from Madison Square Garden? I guess the final thing on his mind was what he lived for, money, money. But I guess my favorite final famous last words were spoken by Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was this um, nun who literally lived for the glory of God. She had just a sweet and gentle spirit and she spoke these words just before her passing that were so simple and yet to me were so, so very powerful. Here's what she says. She says, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. I love last words. They, they say something about somebody. They, they say something about their character. It, it says something about who they are as a person, what they live for, and what matters most to them. I want to take us somewhere different. I want to take us back some 2,000 years ago to the very first Easter. You remember the story, right? Jesus, the Son of God, has come to be among men. Uh, the Father sends his Son into the world to love the world, to show the world what love is, to show the world how to love 
one another. But it wasn't only that. He, he sends his son into the world uh, to show us how to treat one another, to care for one another. But it's much more than that. He, he shows us how to prioritize the soul. He, he shows us how to prioritize what truly matters in life. But the scriptures record how the world was having nothing to do with it. The scriptures record how, how the religious system, the religious people of his day, they decide to turn on him and they, they feel threatened by him. They feel like, like he's, he's changing everything. He's turning everything upside down. And so they arrest him. They, they make up these false charges and, and, and they say that he's, that he's hurting people, that he's destroying their religious system. And, and, and so they accuse him of these things and they, they have this mockery of a trial where they begin to beat him and they begin to mock him and they begin to spit on him and and all through this the scripture says he remains silent he doesn't answer his accusers and then his accusers they decide that that his life wasn't even worth living anymore and so they turned him over to Rome to be executed because because the Jewish leadership of that day did not have the power of execution so they gave him over to the Roman officials and he stands trial before a man named Herod who was king over Rome at that time in that region and and he puts him through this trial where he decides to sentence him to death on a cross but not before he was severely beaten and so the scriptures record how they they take the son of God the innocent lamb of God, the only one who ever lived a perfect sinless life, a life of love, a life poured out in service toward humanity. They take this one and only son of God and they beat him to a pulp. They, 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 they scourge him in such a way that the scripture records the onlookers who looked at this situation records that, that he didn't even look recognizable as a man anymore. That's how much they bloodied him. That's how much they beat him. They spat upon him and they mocked him all the way through. But the scripture records this this mind-crazy type of thing that he made no charges back toward them. He said nothing in response to them. The scriptures say that he was like a lamb that was silent before the slaughter. A lamb who did not answer the charges. So he's beaten, so he's mocked, he... He's literally sentenced to a crucifixion. They eventually take him and they nail him to a cross. They place this this crown of thorns on his head. And and yet it says he remains silent through it all. He doesn't utter a word back toward his accusers. Uh, do Do you know what his accusers said? The onlookers around him said, he says, if they say, if you are the son of God, then save yourself. The, the religious leaders who were standing at the foot of the cross, they're recorded as saying, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. They mocked him. The Romans standing there said, if you are who you say you are, if you are the son of God made flesh, then come down off that cross and do something about it. In other words, yeah, yeah, if you're so tough, go ahead and take us on. But Jesus, it says... He remained silent in in the face of these ascetic words, these rancid words, these words that were meant to talk. And and what makes me so mad is who mocks a a man who's sentenced to death, no matter who the man is? The man's about to die. Who mocks a dying man? I mean, weren't weren't the, the fist blows to his face enough? Weren't the picking or the plucking of his beard enough? What wasn't it enough to put a crown of thorns on his head. Wasn't it enough to nail him to the cross? Did you have to mock him as well? Apparently they did. 
Of all the scenes that surround the cross, nothing makes me more angry than this. What kind of people mock a dying man? Who is so off base that they, they pour the salt of, of scorn on open wounds? Who is so perverted and low that they would, they would, uh, that they would reap insult upon a man who is so laced with pain already? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. But those who were looking on the scene, they said that Jesus remained silent. As a matter of fact, the scripture records that though he suffered, it says he entrusted his soul to the one who judges justly. Did you notice what Jesus did not do? He did not retaliate. He didn't bite back. He, he didn't say, oh yeah, yeah, you wait, you say this to my face. Why don't you say this to my face? He didn't say, you wait to after the resurrection, pal, and then I'll show you what's up. He did none of that. That was not on the lips of Christ. But what did it say? It, it says that, that he entrusted his soul to the one who judges justly. In other words, he trusted his father to avenge him. He trusted his father to make things right. He trusted his father to make all things new. He, he made no demands for an apology. He, he didn't like go out and hire a bounty hunter or set a posse out to, to go track these people down. But instead he did something astounding. He did something that's crazy. It's something that just ruins my soul when I think about it. You know what he does? He defends the ones who are killing him. This is what the scripture says. In the book of Luke, chapter 23, he utters these words. He says, Father, forgive them. He says, Father, don't hold this against them. Father, make this new for them. Give them another chance, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. And they truly didn't know what they were doing. They were a stir-crazy mob with blood on their lips. They didn't know that they were taking the Son of God, the very Son of God. They didn't know that they were, they were taking the life of the one who loved them most. Yes, the dialogue on that Friday afternoon was bitter. The, the words were rancid. Uh, the words that were spoken against Jesus, they were meant to hurt and to sting. But what keeps going through my mind is, is how could Jesus... How could Jesus, he was the one who, whose body was racked with pain. He was the one whose eyes were filled with his own blood, who, who could not even fill his lungs with air. Uh, it, how could Jesus have compassion on the thugs who were taking his own life? If anybody deserved a moment of revenge, if anybody deserved a, 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 a chance to get even, it was Jesus on that day. And yet, he chooses to die on a cross for them, for you, and for me. And it doesn't even make sense. And, and so when I think about this, it makes all the struggles and all the pain of my life look rather small. And it makes those grudges that I carry with me, it makes them look rather childish. In that moment, a dying man, he, he, he speaks of the things that matter most to him. People at the, at the end of their life, when they're ready to take their final breath, they, they tell of what matters most to them. They, they speak words to, to the people around them that they know that they want them to hear. They want them to land heavy on them. These are final words. And so Jesus says, Father, forgive them because they don't even know that they need it. 
So Jesus, the lovely one, Jesus, the holy one, Jesus, the son of God looks at you and me and says, this is what you need most. Famous last words, Father, forgive them. If Jesus thought what we needed most was a teacher, he would have said, Father, give them more educators. If, if, if Jesus thought what we needed more was money, he would have said, Father, give them more bankers. Or if Jesus would have thought we needed more entertainment, he would have said, Father, give them more comedians and musicians and television sets. If he would have thought that what we needed was better health, he would have said, Father, give them more medical, more, more hospital, more medicines. That's what he would have prayed. But he didn't pray that. He says, what you need most is forgiveness. And then he tacks on this little phrase. And he says, because you don't even know that you need it. You don't even realize that you stand in desperate need of being made right with your God. I don't even know if we realize this, but we were created by God for splendor. And yet we settle for mediocrity. We were created by God for love. And yet we scar each other with hate. He gives a businessman God-given intelligence, but but he sees us using it for Satan-given greed. He, he gives us this, this, this tongue for, for encouragement, and yet he sees us using it to cut one another like daggers. He gives us hands for helping and for lifting and for holding, but instead he sees that we use them for hurting. He gives us eyes that, that are sprinkled with joy, and yet he sees them filled with lust and greed and jealousy. And when he sees the emptiness of soul and the emptiness of heart that we live with, an emptiness that you and I often don't even realize we have, he sees this in us and his heart breaks. When he sees that we are consumed with sin and when he sees that we are consumed with self, his heart is broken for us. And he says to you and to me that this is what you need most. You need to be made right with your creator. You need to be forgiven. You need, you need forgiveness. When he sees the brokenness of soul, when he sees the emptiness of heart that we live with, an emptiness that you and I don't even often realize that we have, when he sees that we are filled with sin and consumed with lust and greed and selfishness and pride, when he sees this brokenness in all of us, that his heart breaks and he reaches toward you and me and he says, this is what you need. He says, Father, famous last words, Father, forgive them for they don't even know that they need it. He says, Father, forgive them because they don't even know that they need it. Now, Jesus saw a heart that needed forgiveness most when he saw this woman. Her story is recorded in the, in the Gospel of John, and it records that she was a broken woman in this moment. Her feet were bare and they were muddy, and her, her arms covered her chest as they clutched each other underneath of her chin. Uh, her, her heart was was ragged and torn and broken, not only from the, the anger of the, of the mob that brought her to this point, but because of her own guilt as well. And with all the tenderness of a father, Jesus began to, to heal her broken heart, to begin to put it back together again. And the first thing he does is this, he, he, he diverts the attention of the crowd to, to himself when he, when he kneels to the earth and he begins to write in the ground. 
And in this moment of writing in the ground, he takes all of the eyes of these men, of these accusers that were looking at this, at this woman who was caught in adultery, this naked woman who was full of shame in this moment. He takes all of their eyes from her and puts them onto himself, giving her uh, just a moment of much needed grace. But these accusers were persistent. They didn't give up and they start yelling out, teacher, Teacher, tell us what you want us to do with her because the law commands that we pick up a stone and we stone her to death. We put her to death because of what she has done. But Jesus doesn't give the kind of answer that you thought he would give. He, he doesn't say, well, where is, uh, where's the man? Because the law indicts the man as well. He's guilty as well. He doesn't say that. He, and he doesn't even say, uh, why are you dusting off a, an, an ancient, old, uh, centuries-old law that hasn't been used forever? Why are you bringing up some very ancient thing to somehow condemn this woman? Why are you doing it? He doesn't do that at all. As a matter of fact, he actually gives them a little bit of an invitation. He invites them through this query. He, he starts to ask them this question. Is there any among you who is sinless, who's perfect, who has never made a mistake, who hasn't done wrong with their life? Because if there's any among you, then you have the right to throw the first stone. But But if you haven't been perfect, then you have no right. And in that moment, there was silence over the crowd until somebody, I don't know, cleared their voice as if he was going to talk, and then he thought the better because you eventually start to hear the shuffling of feet as the crowd begins to walk away, and you begin to hear the the thuds, the thuds, the thuds of dropping stones. From the grayest beard to the blackest beard, they start to walk away. You, You see, they came as one, but they leave one at a time because they each begin to realize that there is no one among them who is innocent, no one who has the right to throw a stone, and no one has the right to condemn. And then Jesus looks back toward this woman and he says to her, he says, and almost like a smile on his face, he says, is there no one left to condemn you? And she looks at him and says, no one, sir. No one but one. Jesus was the only one left. I don't know what she was expecting. I don't know if she was expecting condemnation. I don't know if she was expecting a lecture. I don't know if she was expecting judgment, but what she got was extraordinary. What she got was so different than anybody expected. What she got was a promise and she got leadership. The promise was that neither do I condemn you. The promise was for no condemnation. The promise was for grace in that moment. And the leadership was go and sin no more. I don't know if, uh, if the woman that was caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8 would have been at the foot of the cross the day that Jesus uttered those famous last words. I don't know that she was, but I'd like to think she was. And and I don't know if she was there, if she would have actually recognized Jesus as the same Jesus she met on her day. Because there were a lot of Jesuses in those days. There were a lot of Messiah wannabes, but I have to think that she would have recognized them because I think she would have recognized his hands because it was the same hands that on the day that she met him that held no stones. 
And on the day of the cross, it was the only pair of hands that, again, held no stones. Jesus was not there to condemn anyone. And I think she would have recognized his eyes because, because it was the same eyes that were filled with hope, filled with love, and filled with compassion. It was those same eyes that were filled with tears, that, that, with tears that, that loved humanity. Tears that saw her not as she was, but as she was intended to be. And I think she would have recognized his voice. His voice was raspier that day, broken that day, barely audible probably. But she would have recognized those words those famous last words. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Friends, that's called amazing grace. Amazing grace. How are we doing thus far? How are you doing? My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so glad that you have joined us for Easter. My hope is is that uh, you would have connected with this so far, but what I hope to do uh, during our final remaining moments together is is I want to tie this all together, and I want to talk about something that we all have in common. And you know what that is, right? It's this idea that we have this propensity, all of us do, we have this propensity to bargain or to think that we can make deals with God. I mean, we really do this. And so in, in a moment, I'm going to ask that uh, you would be really honest, right? I mean, this is church, so we need you to be honest. And I'm going to ask that you would confess something. Uh, you know, I know we're not Catholics. Uh, we're, we're Protestants, but uh, there's something that we can learn from our Catholic brothers and sisters. And that is this idea of confession, because all of us have this in common, every one of us, that we have this propensity to try to negotiate and to deal, to make deals with God. And you know how this works, right? You remember back in high school, anybody remember your high school days? I mean, you did something again and you got caught and you're on your way home, you're on that drive home and, and what do you do? You, you, you pray, you know, it's this idea that God, if you do this for me now, I will do this for you later. But on your way home, you say something like this, you say, God, um, I know we haven't talked in a while, God, I know there's some distance between us, but um, I did it again. And I need you to do something for me. What I need, and we, we explain this to God. We say, God, what I need is I need you to make sure that my parents are asleep when I get home. And if they're asleep when I get home, this is what I have to offer you. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church. I'm even going to go to Sunday school. I'm going to go to youth group. I'm even going to go to church camp. And as a matter of fact, I might even give some money to that stupid church. Right? We, we bargain with God, all of us have this tendency to try to negotiate things out with God. You know, when, when your back's up against the wall, God, if you somehow fix this, I will do this. And it doesn't really re- matter what religion you are or even if you have no religion at all. And, and it's funny, this may even come as a shock to some of you, but even people who say they do not believe negotiate with God. Atheists even negotiate with God. I've witnessed it myself. People, friends who, who say, I have no belief. I have no faith. But when their back is pushed hard enough up against the wall, the phone call comes and says, Jeremy, can you pray for me? And, and we start to negotiate. You see, even if you're hard on the inside, even if you think you can manage without God, when our back is pushed far enough up against the wall, here's what happens. We negotiate because the doctor comes in the room and says, the sickness you have, there's nothing left 
that we can do for you. I'm sorry. And so we go to God and we say, God, if you get me out of this, God, if you help me through this, God, I will, I will, I will. And we make all these promises to God. You know, when you're caught, when something finally comes down the pipe and you're caught and you have nowhere else to turn, you, you begin to negotiate. So let me just have a moment of confession here. How many in the room would admit, hands up in the air, you'd say, I've negotiated with God a time or two. I've negotiated. I've, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You make these promises to God if he helps you out. Well, here's something that I'm learning. Here's something that I know about me and I know about you. Here, here's the problem with negotiating with God. We're not so good at our end of the bargain. We're not so good at keeping our end of the deal, are we? You, you see, what happens for most of us is that when something finally comes our way, when something finally turns in our direction and things start heading in the right direction for us, what do we say? We just go, whoo, I was lucky. I'm so glad my parents were asleep. I'm just, we, I was lucky, right? As if God had nothing to do with it. And we just go back on our merry way in life. And so really, what were we doing with our negotiations? Let's just be honest. We were just trying to get God onto our side. That's it. We were just trying to get God on our side. And there might be even something more that I know about us. When, about you and about me, listen, not only are we not so good at keeping our end of the deal up, there's a couple assumptions that we make when we negotiate with God. Do you realize this, right? You do this and I do this. When, when you negotiate with God, you assume a couple things. No, number one is, is that you assume that God knows that you exist, right? Whenever you've entered this negotiation thing with God, this deal making with God, you have a measure of faith. You have a measure of faith that he's real and that he knows that you exist. You, you think he knows your name. You think he knows your circumstance. You think he knows your situation and, and that he gives a flying rip about it. That he can do something about it and he just might do something about it if you make him enough deals. If you make him enough offers. Yeah, so we, we assume that he exists. And then there's another assumption that we make. We assume, listen to this, we assume that we have something that God wants. I mean, you, that's how deals work, right? You know, I know what you, you know, what I want from you, but what do you want from me? This is how business works, right? You want a good or a service, you got money, you want, you each want something from each other. And, and so there's a deal that's made, there's something that's fleshed out in that moment. But here's the deal when it comes to, to, to God. There's nothing you have that he wants. Shock. There's, there's nothing that you and I have that he needs. And this is what is so different about the Christian faith. And to me, this is what is good about the Christian faith. This is the good news of the Christian faith, is that there's no deal-making with God. There's nothing that I have that I can offer him. What, what am I going to offer God? Oh, look at me. I can stand on a stage and talk to some people. Show me another trick. What are you going to offer God? What do you have that will impress him? 
There's no negotiation. And this is the beautiful thing about the Christian faith. This is the reason. This is the essence of Easter. This is the the reason for the crucifixion. This is the reason for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That God is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That he comes and he says, no deal making. There's no reason for a deal. I'm offering you something for nothing. If you were to uncover this thing called the Christian faith, if you were to dive deep into it, you will see, listen friends, you will see at the very middle of the Christian experience, you would see at the very epicenter of the pages of scripture, you would see at the very epicenter of the God-man relationship, you would see one central word. It's this word called grace. Grace. And you know what grace is, right? I mean, you see it every once in a while in the human experience. You, you really do. It's, it's this idea that you don't deserve something, but something good comes your way. And you see this every once in a while where you can't earn it, you can't somehow manipulate it, but you just get something good for nothing, right? I mean, you're like on the side of the road. You don't have your wallet. You're, you're in a ditch and, and you can't call anybody. You can't buy, buy your way out of this, but somebody pulls over and you say, I got nothing I can pay you. There's nothing I can do for you would you help me? And some guy says, I'll help you. And they pull you out of that ditch. That's a good deal, isn't it? Something for nothing. But listen, when it comes to God, when it, when it comes to eternity, when it comes to sin and heaven and hell and all that, the stakes are much, much greater. They're much, much higher than that. And so I learned the definition of grace when I was a kid. Listen, I learned a definition when I was a kid. I've, I remembered it all these years. Maybe it's because it was really short and that's all I can remember. Maybe it was something very simple and maybe that's all I can remember. I don't know, but I just think it works. Somebody once told me that grace is unmerited favor. Getting something that you don't deserve. Something for nothing, grace. And you get a little picture of grace, right, every once in a while. Again, like in the human experience, like like uh, you, when you're a kid. Anybody have to do chores when you're a kid? Anybody? Oh, I'm so glad. Oh, it wasn't just me, but uh, but listen, you have to do chores, but and you had all these expectations, and, and a parent says, if you meet these expectations, I'm going to give you an allowance. I'm going to give you some whole cold, hard cash, right? But how many times did we live up to it? And yet our parents many of us at least, gave it to us anyways. Or maybe your boss at work, you know, you screw something up at work. I mean, you really screw it up. There's no getting around it. You messed up and your boss at work knows about it. He sees you square in the eye and he turns away. And he doesn't hold you accountable. He lets it go. It's called grace. It's called grace. Or or maybe when your honey says, hey, does this dress make me look fat? And you say, yes, it does. And she lets you back into the house. It's called grace. It's called grace. It's getting something for nothing. It's getting what you do not deserve. But here's the thing. When it comes to this thing called faith, when it comes to this thing called the God-man relationship, it's even bigger than getting something for nothing. Let me tell you what it is. It's bigger than just unmerited favor. 
is getting what you can't even buy, what you can't work for, what you, you, you not only don't deserve it, but you can't earn it for yourself. And you get something that you could never, ever, ever achieve on your own. You know what grace is? Grace is Christ's power made real in your life in your weakest moment. It is the power of God when you are at your weakest part, weakest point. That's what grace is. It's more than just something for nothing. It's getting something that you could never earn for yourself. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to share one little passage of Scripture. And then we're going to just kind of wrap this whole thing up. Just one little passage of Scripture. Uh, it's, it's found in the book of Ephesians. And Paul, a man named Paul, wrote it. And it was a letter that went out to these Christians and at this little town called Ephesus, or this big town actually called Ephesus, and they were spreading this letter around. And like one Christian read it, would read it, and another group of Christians would read it, and they would just kind of pass it along from one to another. And here's what's really interesting. If you do the backstory of this, this letter was written about 25 years after the very first Easter, after the death of Jesus. And it was written while Paul was in a prison cell. And so he wanted to remind the church of what was at the epicenter of our existence. He wanted to remind people of the God-man relationship and what was at the very middle of it all. And now what's interesting is you think about our world today. Christians all over the globe, all over the globe are being arrested because of their, just because of their faith. They're being arrested and put in jail and often killed. And Paul was arrested, put in jail, in waiting for his Roman trial to occur and ultimately his death sentence. And he's waiting for this. And he takes out a piece of paper and he takes out a pen. The man who God used to launch the church to be the first missionary to the world, who God used in extraordinary ways, who was once a persecutor of the church, who was once a murderer himself, he turns and he gives his whole life to Christ and he says, what's at the center of it? I want the people to know before I die. And he writes this in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm just going to read it to you. It says this, as for you, and that would be me and you, he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. You, you, you were dead. That, he, he was saying it was, like, it was like there was no life between you and God. You were dead to God, and God was dead to you. And, and you know the problem with dead things? They can't do anything. When, when you're dead, you're stuck. When you're dead, there's no motion, there's no life, there's no movement. And it says that you were dead and I was dead before God. And as a matter of fact, if you were to go back and read this passage on your own, Ephesians chapter 2, you'll see that Paul elaborates and he says, when you were dead in your sins, and he starts talking about even when you would set standards for yourself. Have you ever done this? Set a standard for yourself? and we're not able to live up to your own standard, he says, this is how dead you were. That you would set goals for yourself, um, levels of achievement for yourself, levels of behavior for yourself, levels of moral consciousness for yourself, levels of action for yourself, and you couldn't even live up to your own standards that you created for you. Anybody ever done that? Anybody? He says, you were so dead, you couldn't even do what you wanted to do. And then he, he writes this, but God, you need to say that with me, but God, 
Say that again. One, two, three. But God. I think we need to say that again. But God. But God. But God. You see, when, when we mess up, when we sin, and when we have a blackness of soul, when we hurt a relationship, and we, we do have this moment of prayer, right? We go to God and we say, oh, God, I really know I messed this up, but I promise I will, I will, I will fix it. God, I know I messed up, but I will make it better. God, I know I screwed this one up, but I promise you, I promise I will, and then you fill in the blank. And Paul goes, enough but I, there is no more I. You can't do it. You can't fix it. You can't make it right. But God can. And he changes the whole God-man relationship in this moment. He reveals again to us that it is because of God. But God, but God, but God, but God, but God. But God can. And God comes to you even when you're dead. Because it goes on and says, but being rich in mercy. Listen, God is so loaded with mercy, he's rich, and he's got it just coming out, and he wants to give it away. Woo! And he gives it to me. And he gives it to you. He's rich in mercy. He doesn't want to condemn. He wants to pour his lavish love out on you, because it says this, because of the great love with which he has loved us. That's why. Why does God even care about us? Because he loves us. We matter to him. He created us and wants us in right relationship with him. He says, because of this great love for which he lo- by which he loves us, even when you were what? Dead. Dead in your sin, dead in your transgressions, dead in, you, in, in your addictions, dead in your struggles, dead in your depression, dead in your lifelessness. When you were dead, he made us what? Alive. Come on. He made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. And, and then he says this crazy thing. He says this one word. He goes, by what? Grace. By grace. By grace. By grace. By grace. Not your works, not your efforts. By grace. It's no I involved. There's nothing you can do. By grace. I give it to you what you do not deserve. By grace. 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 He puts the God-man relationship back together when it doesn't fit inside of me normally, naturally. He does what I cannot do for myself by grace. Undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. God is good to us. And so we started to talk about these famous last words of Jesus when you and I are a wreck even when you and I rebel against God when we push away when we don't even we don't we have a, we don't even have a concern for his voice in our life any longer he says these words father forgive them It's the biggest but God ever. Father, forgive them even when they don't even know that they need it. Forgive them. Give them grace. Give them mercy. 
Give them hope. Give them peace. Give them life. Make them new. Grace. Pretty incredible, isn't it? But God.